Today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 10, starting at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some followers, some believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So, I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. And now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll look at this together. Our great God and Father, we uh, come to a passage such as this and we thank you for what it reveals of your character, that in you there is no bias or favoritism, that you are a God whose arms are wide open to all, no matter what we've done, no matter our background, our tribe, our race, and what great news that is. Help us understand it, and would we share that heart? Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a letter written in to uh, Guardian six weeks or so ago. Um, It was titled, uh, it was published in full, it was titled, A Letter to My Parents whose favoritism ripped our family apart. And you can kind of guess what that's going to say. It was a really miserable letter um, that they'd published. Uh, Let me read you uh, some choice extracts. Do you remember the winter's day when uh, my sister and I were drawing pictures? We kept asking you which picture you liked best, and you always chose hers. So the next drawing we did, I asked my sister to swap with me. When dad chose my sister's drawing again as the best one, I proudly exclaimed, we swapped. That's actually my picture, dad. He replied, I've changed my mind. I could not have been more hurt if you'd beaten me. My school reports were always met with, yes, well, you should be doing well at school. Whereas my two siblings were praised. You refused to fund me through university even though you paid for my brother and sister to go. Even though I begged you. And even now, we're adults, you don't care one iota about my children, even though you lavish gifts and attention on my siblings' children. Of course, my brother and sister have learned to treat me with the same disdain as you always have. Your favoritism has destroyed our family. That's just miserable, isn't it? Isn't that awful? Of course, you don't know the ins and outs. And actually, although if you read on the letter, it's... It doesn't sound from what he writes, he's always in one perspective, that he's just got sour grapes. It does sound utterly dysfunctional. That's a shocking thing. 
And yet here is the issue at the heart of our passage today. Favoritism. And how instinctive it is for many of us to show it. And yet the central truth here is in chapter 10, verse 34, Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not show favoritism. Now that is wonderful and unusual in our world, in a world of fascism, nationalism, snobbery, God says no. No favoritism along cultural lines, racial lines, national lines. No favoritism. But we struggle with that. Look, here's a sort of, uh, you know, a a brief selection, Susie. um, You'll recognize these sort of pictures uh, from the left, okay, from decades ago. But there's a sign of apartheid. No, just whites here, please. No blacks here. As you go around, if you make out the bottom one, that's uh, obviously a religious one. You're driving through Saudi Arabia, and up comes the sign. If you want to go to Mecca, Muslims only. If you're not a Muslim, you're not allowed. Uh, you have to go on the bypass. You have to go to other cities. And most of us in the West say, oh, it's despicable, apartheid, despicable, religious division like that, despicable. Uh, and yet we can still succumb to the, the, the top right. Tory scum or ridiculous communists on the other side. And even the civilized press can be a not far removed from it. We struggle in our world. In the West, we can vehemently denounce uh, some of these things and yet easily succumb to others. Them and us. I will not be, I could not be friends with a Tory. I could not, for they are the scum. I cannot countenance dining with that man, Jeremy Corbyn, and his ridiculous ideas. Them and us. And we are better, and they are worse. It's very instinctive to human nature to make those sort of divisions. And God does not, and he does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation and background, and that's a wonderful thing. If you are just joining us today, uh, you're very welcome. We've been working our way on and off through this year through the book of Acts. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom and it's unstoppable. That's the point of this book of Acts. The uh, the agenda he's really set in chapter 1 verse 8, that this gospel message the apostles are witness in Jerusalem uh, and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've been working our way through these stages. This section in chapter 9 verse 32 to 12, 24, the focus falls upon Peter as he breaks through these different boundaries. Uh, Jesus had told him he'd be the sort of foundational apostle. Uh, he would have the keys, as it were, to the kingdom. And so he is the one on Acts chapter 2 who preaches the first sermon and thousands of Jews become Christians. And we saw in chapter 8, uh, he is the one who has to go and authenticate the Samaritans becoming Christians as the Spirit falls upon them as well. And here in chapter 10, it has to be Peter who goes and sees the conversion of these first Gentiles and the Spirit fall upon them too. It has to be Peter even though Philip's there, if you were here a few weeks ago. Philip, the, the, the evangelist, is here in Caesarea at the end of chapter 8. He's there, but no, it has to be Peter who walks 30 miles. has to be him. If you had three children, 
and uh, uh, every time went to the school plays, the sports matches of two of them, but to the third you sent a delegate, the au pair. Uh, the third child would start to feel a little bit missed that they were, they were the, uh, the runt, uh, treated somewhat differently. And just so here, Peter had been the one who'd preached and the spirit had come down on the, upon the Jewish population, upon the Samaritan population. It has to be him that opens the doors to the Gentiles, becoming Christians in precisely the same way as everyone else. No favoritism. I've tweaked it from what was down on the sheets. We're looking at it in these three ways. There's no favoritism in salvation, 1 to 35. No favoritism in the message, 36 to 43. And then no favoritism in practice, 44 to 48. You get the point? No favoritism in salvation, in the message, in practice. No favoritism. Let's work through them. First then, we look at the bulk of this account. In verses 1 to 35 of chapter 10, there is no favoritism in salvation. Now, fairly obviously, this whole narrative, it's it's driven by God. It's driven by the Lord. So each time you get the sort of divine visitation, angel vision, uh, uh, then the human action and someone gets welcomed. That's just what happens all the time. So in verses 1 to 8, an angel visits Cornelius and uh, tells him to send for Peter, who's 30 miles away in Joppa, gives him the address. Cornelius does as he's told. Uh, Then in verses 9 to 23, uh, the Lord gives a vision to Peter. And he does what he's told. Verse 9, let's pick it up from there. About noon the following day, as they went on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry. Well, it's lunchtime, it's midday. And wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up and Peter and kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, he replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Okay. Well, then verse 17, Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. Well, he might. Okay. So there's something about clean and unclean. That, that's clearly what's going on. Now back up a little bit. In the Old Testament, God gave to his people, Israel, various food laws. You can eat these creatures and not those. Uh, anything that's got a cloven hoof, uh-uh-uh, you can't eat that. Uh, shellfish, uh-uh-uh, you can't eat that. Now why does he do that? Well, Israel was living in a region where their neighbors were immoral. Deeply so amongst the Canaanites, uh, child sacrifice was a common ritual. We're not just saying they smoked a few too many cigarettes a day. They were deeply, profoundly, by any standards in history, abhorrent. And God says, don't be like them. Don't defile yourself to be like them. And let me remind you that you mustn't be like these people around you by giving you different food laws. So when you don't eat their food, it's a reminder to you, don't act like them. It's sort of an aid memoir. Now it's a fairly blanket rule he gives them, much like a a parent might say to a young child, don't take sweets from strangers. 
Why? Is every stranger outside of our family a wicked person seeking to do me wrong? No, no, no. But it's just safest to have the blanket rule. You'll learn that way. Don't take sweets from strangers. Some will be nice. Some will not. But just don't. Don't blend in with the people around you, says God to his people Israel. Some are okay. Some are absolutely wicked. But don't go near them. And let me teach you. Um, I'll train you. Uh, moral defilement by this sort of avoiding edible defilement. It's meant to help educate you uh, this way. So some animals were okay to eat, other creatures were not. The problem was that as the centuries have rolled on, uh, Israelites, the Jewish nation, had somewhat perverted these laws. So really it said, we are better than everyone. So rather than just being uh, a sort of distinguishing mark, they took them as a mark of absolute superiority. You can read Jewish works of the first century at the time. All non-Jews are dogs. Even in our reading today, you can see the habits that took place. So verse 28, when they finally meet up, Peter can say, look, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. That's not actually a very good translation. Uh, You're well aware it's against our law. It's actually the word is customs. It's not the word for law. Uh, Not the Greek word that's always used for law. And it was not in the law that you couldn't relate. But against their customs, we, we just don't go near you lot. You're just beyond the pale to us. So this had become perverted into a them and us. We're superior. We can't go near you. Vividly, I saw this um, when I was at university. The, the, um, at the end of our fir- my first year at university, I agreed to live with a gang, a, bu- a bunch of blokes. Uh, the biggest sort of character, uh, how do you describe it politely, uh, the, the lad, the, the most debauched, really, uh, was a nice, he was a fun guy, but uh, golly, his lifestyle was not one to emulate. A, a chap called Paul, he was a hoot of a character. Uh, over the f- summer, between the first and second years, he went to Israel, and all of a sudden, he discovered his Jewishness that he, you know, by birth. And so during the course of this year, as we lived together, he became increasingly interested and increasingly orthodox until halfway through the year, he said, I can't live with you anymore. And he moved out. He said, I'm sorry, you just corrupt me. Uh, moved out. It was just vividly seeing this played out before my eyes. And so Peter gets this vision. Everything you've known all your life, Peter, all these animals that I'd said, you know, you shouldn't eat that. The whole way you've brought up this them and us, everyone is clean and all creatures are clean. No says, whatever he is, this man, 35 years old, we don't know Peter's age, 40 years old. No, that can't be right. Verse 14, surely not. So so verse 15, the voice speaks to him a second time. Don't you call anything impure that God has made clean? And he gets this three times. Because do you know what? When you've grown up with certain habits or prejudices ingrained within you for 30, 40 years, it's quite hard to overcome them. But things are changing. Three times he gets this vision. And so he's, he's thrown, verse 17. So Peter's wondering, sorry, what exactly does this mean, practically, this vision? And so the Lord intervenes for the third time. Third intervention, verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so do, so excuse me, so get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them. I have 
sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for, why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion, he's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel asked him, told him to ask you to come to this house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house. Well, golly, that's, that's significant. Peter would never have associated with Gentiles before. Now he says, okay, you can come into, well, it's not my house technically, but you can come into this house. I'll sit with you, I'll dine with you. So he's changing. And then they go. It takes them two days, uh, verse 23, two days to walk to Joppa. It's 30, excuse, from Joppa to Caesarea. It's about 30 miles. And he's clearly learned, verse 24, the following day, Peter, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large group of people. Uh Uh-oh, this is getting from worse. What's going on here? Verse 28, he said to them, you're well aware it's against our customs for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Now, may I ask, why have you sent for me? What's going on? Verse 30. Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer, remembered your gifts to the poor, sent a job of a Simon who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home with Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea, so I sent for you immediately. It was good of you to come. Now, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What, Peter? You know you've got a message. We know you've got a message. Tell us the message. And so he does. Verse 34, Peter began to speak. Okay, I now realize how true it is God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And of course, this is an enormous moment in history. It's why I'm a Christian, but most here are. Anyone can know God's love for Jesus from any background, from any nation. I know many of us would take it for granted. But it was striking then, and sometimes it's very striking when you see it in practice. Remember a few years ago, on a trip to Jerusalem, uh, going to the uh, Jerusalem Alliance Church, which we're linked with, and um, uh, it's a mostly Palestinian church in the old city of Jerusalem, but being very struck when uh, in front of me, two men holding hands, which is just cultural friendship, two men in their 40s, 50s, holding hands and singing together, and one had been born a Jew, and one was a Palestinian by birth. And both of them had become Christians. And they held hands and they praised Jesus and said, we're brothers. And it's wonderful to see that. Of course, in one sense, it's just a, a, a mark that people from any background could become Christians. But in that culture, where you grow up and you are taught fear, watch out, dislike them, you can't trust them. Kill them. Oh, it's vivid. 
when you see it in front of you like that. There is no favoritism in salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's a God with arms wide open to every nation, to every culture. There is no race, nation, class that God does not embrace. None. And so, of course, for you and for me, we must be the same. Don't snub anyone. We don't rule out anyone. We don't think of anyone as too different. We don't conceive of anyone as just too unpleasant. Because God does not show favoritism. And so his people can't either. There's no favoritism in salvation. That's the main event. But what's it built upon? Let's secondly then, there's no favoritism in the message, verses 36 to 43. Peter begins to preach. And here is the, the message. Here are the truths that produce the conclusion that all are the same in salvation. It's this message. Here are the ingredients, if you will, who, that produce such a magnificent outcome. And really, it's the life, death, resurrection, judgment of Jesus. It's the gospel. So verse 36, you know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. So verse 37, his life. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That was what his life was like. It was years ago, April the 19th, 1987. On the front page of every newspaper the next day, was Princess Diana. It's a seminal moment. She'd visited the, an AIDS hospital for the first time and held the hands of an AIDS sufferer. Well, it was all sorts of confused messages at the time. People thought, can you get AIDS from holding someone's hand? And she held the hand. Wow. She held a baby with AIDS, cuddled. Well, it changed all sorts of people's attitudes. Oh, okay, that's not how you get AIDS. It's a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a fairly seminal moment in sort of her myth or, or legend. And here, Peter is saying, you know the life of Jesus Christ. He touched lepers. No, you really can get their disease that way. He broke all sorts of conventions. He met with prostitutes. He... Spoke and spent time with Gentile dogs, as they would have known by his Jewish countrymen. He excluded no one. You know his life. Verse 39, you know his death. Verse 39, we are witnesses. We are apostles. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. Actually, the word here, I don't know why they translated it, cross. The word here is tree. It's not cross. It's tree. They hung him on a tree. Why does Peter say that? Well, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21, if you're hung upon a tree, you're cursed. And that's the point of Jesus' death. It's a death paying the curse for all our failures, all our sin. 
his life, his death, his resurrection. Verse 40, God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. We've seen him. He is risen. And lastly, verse 42, he will return. He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify. Judge of the living and the dead. Well, that that doesn't exclude anyone. And all will come before Jesus one day and are judged on the same basis. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? Have you loved people around you, your neighbours as yourself? And the answer for every single person is no. 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 All fall short. There's no favoritism in judgment because he's completely fair as a judge. There's no private members. There's no fast track. So a couple of years ago, it's very rare. Uh, this is a rare thing. Uh, a couple of years ago here, uh, as many would know, um, I fill in lots of school application forms. Uh, they all, you know, the vicar's reference bit. Uh, does the, do the parents attend at least twice a month? Is normally the sort of criteria, uh, not Jesus's criteria. Uh, the school's criteria. Do they attend at least? Is normally that, or do they attend weekly? And uh, of course, many of you know this. You know, happily tick the form, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there was a couple, uh, it was two, three years ago, maybe. Um, they'd never come on a Sunday. They're, one or two of their children had come midweek to the Little Lambs. They'd come along to perhaps something at Christmas, something at Easter. And um, uh, they asked, can you fill in this form? Well, no, I can't, because you never come. Well, I can't. Uh, oh, said the mother. Uh, went away disappointed. Uh, a couple of weeks later, the father asked to have a meeting with me. Uh, so, okay, here we go. And... Um, he sat down and said, can you fill in the form? Uh, I said, well, no, I can't. You don't come to church. And he reached into his pocket and he opened his checkbook and just said, just tell me how much. How much? I said, no, I don't think you understand. I can't lie on the form. No, no, just you, you tell me what figure you want me to write on the check. No, I'm so sorry. You don't understand. There is no figure. Because you said that in your head, you're thinking, well, what, what, really, what would the figure be? Come on! You know, if it was seven figures, wow! No, 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 no. There is, I can't lie. It's not true. You can't buy this. There's no favoritism just because you're wealthier. Here, but when people stand before Jesus Christ, there's no favoritism. You grew up in the right part of the world or... You have parents who taught you in a certain way. There's no favoritism at all. And yet, verse 43, verse 43, he says, Ah, but here's the good news. All the prophets, all the Old Testament testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is wonderful. Yes, if you trust that his death was a curse-bearing death for your sins... You can know forgiveness. It's available to everyone who believes in the name of Jesus on precisely the same terms. 
I was reading some Reformation history uh, last week. Uh, Elizabeth I, very unclear, really, what she really believed, uh, if she was converted or just a, a shrewd politician, very unclear. But uh, anyway, uh, when the, 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 sort of the prayer book was being rewritten and uh, uh, put together, uh, she absolutely insisted that when people took the Lord's Supper, everyone kneeled. No, lots of people didn't want this. They wanted to sit or wanted to stand. But she said, everyone must kneel, including me. I don't know about kneeling, but I like the last bit, including me. Everyone receives the Lord's Supper in the precisely the same way. Because all kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way you can be forgiven if you trust in him. See, the wonderful truth here in Acts chapter 10 is anyone can become a Christian. But alongside that, everyone must become a Christian if you want to be forgiven, if you want to know God, if you want to go to heaven. Have you done that? There is no other way. There's no favoritism in judgment or in salvation. It's only through Jesus Christ no favoritism in the message. That's the message that produces the outcome. Everyone is equal before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. No favoritism in salvation, no favoritism in the message. Uh, And then very briefly, 44 to 48, there's no favoritism in practice. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews that is, who came with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Well, of course, they have to have their own Pentecost. It's just like Acts chapter 2, because Peter is there and he's saying, you become Christians in precisely the same way. And so, Peter says, uh, verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized now. They've received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. So we ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, not all are so keen if we haven't read it, but if you read in chapter 11, um, well, let me just read chapter 11, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? What? He explains what's happened. At the end of the chapter, they go, oh, okay, God's, God's wonderful. They heard this, chapter 11, verse 13. They had no further objections. Praise God, saying, even to Gentiles... God has granted repentance that leads to life. Because you know what? It's very hard to become years, overcome years of habit. What? You went and ate with the dogs? Yeah, God told me to. And it happened like this. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, okay. Even on the same basis, very hard to overcome entrenched prejudice. You can know it in your head. God accepts everyone on equal terms. But in your habits. So here's the question that I found unsettling or troubling this week. If, thought experiment, if God gave me a vision like Peter and some sheep descends, and what would be in it for me? God says, do you know what? In practice... In your attitudes, you discriminate. What would be in there for me? What would be in there in in your sheet? 
I don't know. Perhaps it would be a filthy bit of cardboard and a sleeping bag. Because we know that God accepts all people equally, but, but homeless people, they're just a bit awkward. I feel awkward around them in practice. Maybe it would be a top hat because we're inverted snobs and just don't like posh people. I think they're privileged and don't like that. Maybe that's what it would be. I don't know. Maybe some sort of CD, perhaps a playlist of grime music. Because um, we don't like... I mean, we, don't, we don't... Everyone is equal. We just don't like that sort of culture. It's a bit forceful, aggressive. Maybe. I don't know what it would be. Perhaps for many, a, a headscarf. Because God can accept anyone equally. We just don't like those Muslims taking over things. And at that point, I think, I know God accepts all people equally, but I, what would be in my sheet? That I have to overcome in practice. I read an interesting article uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was an interview with a guy called Major Simon Davies. He's an army medic. And uh, he was reflecting, amongst other things, he'd been uh, in charge of the field hospital at Camp Bastion in Helmand Province in Afghanistan a few years ago when uh, British troops were active there. And uh, in this interview, who's being, he, one of the things he reflected on was there was enormous fuss kicked up uh, 10 years ago, I lose track of time, when in, in the British press and all the papers got hold of it, the Daily Mail first and then others followed afterwards, uh, it emerged that British soldiers were waking up in the hospital with deeply traumatic injuries, you know, legs lost, that sort of thing. And they're waking up and in beds next to them are Taliban. And that's hard because you're looking at the bloke who might have shot you, might have planted the explosive, might have killed your mate. And that's hard. And there's a great deal of fuss how inappropriate it is uh, in the press, how inappropriate that our soldiers should uh, be forced to do this. He reflected, the medic, of course we treated them. Of course we treated the Taliban under the Geneva Convention. We're obliged to do so, a commitment to treat enemy soldiers neutrally. It galled us because we knew that they did not subscribe to that. And if any of our guys were injured and fell into their custody, they would not be treated. They would be killed or held as prisoner inappropriately. But we did it. And he said, I quote, it is the greatest challenge of military nursing and doctoring is to put your personal feelings and emotions to one side and to treat a casualty who may have been responsible or on rare occasions you know is responsible for killing or injuring coalition troops. Treating a man that part of you hates is very hard. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt emotions ran very high. But he did it. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think, well, that is a bit like Jesus Christ who came and died for people who hated him. In fact, the whole reason he dies upon the cross is because we've rejected him. 
and therefore mistreat others. And yet he said, here are people who hate me. But I will die for them. I don't discriminate. I don't say uh, those people are the wrong race. Those people are the wrong tribe. Those people are the wrong culture. Those people are too bad. I'll die for all. And they'll be forgiven if they put their trust in me. If they believe in my name. And therefore, here's a call for you and me to be like that. Christians cannot give in to prejudice. Can't. Even though it's been done countless times throughout the history, throughout the centuries. Christians cannot show favoritism. Because we worship a God who knows no favoritism. Dare I say he is radically more welcoming than you or I. He is the God with arms open wide. There is no favoritism in salvation. And that's a wonderful thing. Let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, you had to show Peter three times. You had to speak to him repeatedly so that he would understand this. How much do we need? Not just to believe this in our heads, but to live it out in our practice. To know that before the Lord Jesus Christ, before his throne of judgment, before his cross of salvation, there are no favorites. All are equal. All stand on the same ground. And therefore, we are not to show favoritism. We are not to discriminate. But joyfully take this message of a God who welcomes all with open arms to the corners of this earth, to every tribe, to every nation, to every culture, to every race, to those we naturally find awkward. Father, help us to be honest with ourselves about where in practice we are a little bit prejudiced. Would we increasingly be like you, the God who is generous and shows no favoritism? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.